This episode of Historium is sponsored by Blueberry. Blueberry is the gold standard in podcast hosting, and that's why we use it to host all of our podcasts here on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you would like to get started making your own podcast and are looking for a way to host it, or you're using another podcast hosting platform and simply want to switch, you can get one month free podcast hosting through Blueberry if you go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. It's easy to look back on the past and see it filled with immoral, foolish people. But it's never that simple. Morally, democratically, and scientifically, our generation sits upon the shoulders of giants who themselves sat upon the shoulders of the giants before them. This is often referred to as the human colossus, and it often looks a little something like progress as it grows and changes form. It is with this empathy that this story must be viewed in order to avoid a frustrating rage. This is the story about a simple thing, and how something that now seems so obvious was once entirely controversial. This is a story about washing your hands. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 56, The Savior of Mothers. In the early 1800s, hospitals were a relatively recent addition to most European cities, and people were wary of them. Wealthy people still often chose to give birth at their homes with the help of personal doctors and midwives, and hospitals thus became places that primarily served unwed mothers and pregnant women of the lower classes. But a mother's intuition is a powerful thing. Powerful enough that even poor women were avoiding hospitals, deciding instead to give birth in back alleys without the help of doctors or midwives. Despite all of the challenges that come with delivering a baby out in the elements, those mothers and their newborn children were actually more likely to survive than the ones who elected to give birth in the hospitals. The fatal disease that afflicted mothers in the hospitals was called purpural fever or childbed fever. Around 24 hours after childbirth or a miscarriage, the new mother, often holding her newborn, would get a fever. Within a few hours, she would begin shaking uncontrollably. Her womb felt like fire inside of her. Vile-smelling vaginal discharge then occurred, followed closely by death. The disease was as old as childbirth itself. The ancient Greek physician Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine and after whom the Hippocratic Oath is named, wrote this over 2,400 years ago. Quote, If inflammation of the womb seizes a woman with child, it will probably prove fatal. Unquote. Many doctors and scientists attempted to diagnose the disease that orphaned so many children. The prevailing idea in the 1800s was that the vaginal discharge, which often smelt like spoiled milk, was literally milk that was redirected from the breasts. Doctors thought this occurred because of miasma, or bad air. While miasma was this nebulous thing, in most cases, miasma was simply treated like smell. Anything that smelt bad surely caused disease. Hospitals spent large sums on ventilation systems and liberally applied chemicals to eliminate foul smells. A lot of times, this helped, but not for the reasons they thought. Across Europe in the early 1800s, cases of childbed fever in hospitals regularly claimed the lives of one in four women. For most doctors and pregnant mothers, 
This disease hung over hospitals like a specter. Into this environment steps our hero. Ignaz Semmelweis was born in Budapest in 1818. He came from a long line of farmers turned grocers, and his family was now quite wealthy. He and his nine brothers and sisters all received good educations, and Ignis enrolled in law school. One day, he attended a lecture on medicine with a friend who was in medical school. What he heard enraptured him. In contrast to his studies of complicated laws, the study of medicine had more noble goals, limiting suffering and saving lives. Simmelweis's parents weren't overjoyed when they learned Ignis had switched to medical school. They were even less happy when they discovered that he had elected to study obstetrics, a field that was too close to midwifery for a high-class man like their son to pursue. But Ignis Semmelweis greatly enjoyed his medical studies and was enraptured with each cadaver he dissected or medical tome he took in. Semmelweis obtained his doctorate at a time when nearly all of Eastern Europe was in cultural upheaval. The revolutions of 1848 were forming, and Vienna, Austria was a hotbed for revolutionary activity. Around this time, Simmelweis accepted a position as an assistant to the doctor in the first obstetric clinic in the Vienna General Hospital. He was well-liked by his colleagues. The 28-year-old was already starting to lose much of its blonde hair. His co-workers made fun of his Hungarian accent, and Simmelweis always responded with a smile beneath his blue-gray eyes and bustling mustache. His jovial nature made him a good co-worker, and his intense drive made him an incredible doctor. He approached medicine as if on a mission. Every preacher giving last rites, every death certificate signed, every orphan child only increased his drive. He quickly set his scope on the main butcher of new mothers in his ward, childbed fever. There were two separate clinics at the Vienna General Hospital, the first run by doctors, nurses, and medical students, and the second by midwives. Over his first few years at the hospital, Simmelweis noticed more and more cases of women begging to be taken to the second clinic run by midwives, rather than the first clinic run by the doctors. Some even chose to give birth on the steps of the hospital, rather than let the doctors get their hands on them. There was a good reason for this. The first clinic, run by the doctors, had a much higher mortality rate than the one run by midwives. Nine times higher, actually. Around one in five women who went in to give birth in Clinic 1 never came out. The sheer number of deaths in his hospital shocked Semmelweis to his core. What was causing the massive difference between the two clinics? Semmelweis became fixated on the contrasting statistics. He realized he had a perfect case study on his hands and went about eliminating possible differences between the two clinics. The first and obvious difference between Clinic 1 and Clinic 2 was who was actually delivering the babies, midwives versus doctors. Simmelweis thought doctors should be better trained and more equipped to deal with complications that arose from pregnancy than the midwives. Some doctors chalked up their higher mortality rate to lower-class women's superstitions and fears of their fancy new medical practices, arguing that the women's anxiety actually contributed to their own demise. Victim-blaming, in a sense. Simmelweis began testing hypotheses. Overcrowding? Nope. Clinic 2 was actually the more crowded clinic. Ventilation? Not the issue. Both clinics had almost identical ventilation systems. What about birthing procedures? Semmelweis noticed the midwives in Clinic 2 had expectant mothers give birth on their sides, 
while the doctors in Clinic 1 had them give birth on their backs. He gave the orders to Clinic 1 to imitate the procedures from Clinic 2. After a few months, Semmelweis looked at the data. No change. Semmelweis was running out of discrepancies. He changed even small minutiae, like adjusting which priests gave the final rites, and even looking at which days of the week had the most deaths. But he couldn't find the source. The other doctors were bewildered by Semmelweis's obsession with childbed fever, referring back to the pre-germ theory of miasma. The doctors just blamed bad air, an invisible, vague specter that haunted the halls of the hospital. They assured Semmelweis it was simply bad air, bad timing, bad luck. But Semmelweis couldn't accept this, as the frantic doctor kept searching for the cause of childbed fever in vain, he sunk into a bitter depression. In his journal, he wrote that his predicament, quote, made me so miserable that life itself seemed worthless, unquote. Childbed fever kept claiming lives. In 1847, Simmelweis's good friend and colleague, Jacob Kolechka, performed an autopsy on a recent victim of childbed fever with a medical student. In the middle of the routine procedure, the student's hand slipped, and he nicked Kolechka's finger with a scalpel. Kolechka thought nothing of it and continued his work. He was dead in three days. Simmelweis then had the very strange task of performing an autopsy on one of his closest friends. He was bewildered by what he discovered. His friend, Jacob Kolechka, had died of childbed fever. At first, he thought this impossible, but then he made the connection the cadaver, the scalpel, some way, somehow, the disease had transferred to his friend from the scalpel used on the victim of childbed fever. Simmelweis's eyes widened as he realized the implication of such a transference. The doctors at Clinic 1 performed autopsies with medical students in the mornings before attending to birthing mothers later in the day. Most of the corpses they dissected were victims of childbed fever, and after they were done, they went straight to deliver babies. They may have wiped their hands with a rag, if that, but on their hands and on their aprons was residue from those autopsies. Simmelweis quickly jotted down his hypothesis about the transference of infection from one body to another through... There was no word for it. Remember, this is before germ theory, so Simmelweis simply referred to them as cadaverous particles. Simmelweis was far from the first person to realize a primitive version of what would one day be called germ theory. In 1795, an English obstetrician named Alexander Gordon discovered a connection between outbreaks of a disease and whether or not the physician had dealt with a previous victim of that disease. He went so far as to say, quote, It is a disagreeable declaration for me to mention that I myself was the means of carrying the infection to a great number of women." Unquote. He called his discovery a fatal secret, as midwives, when told, refused to believe that they could be responsible for the spread of a disease that they were desperately fighting against. His ideas never caught on, and he died at 47, having severed all ties to the medical profession. Some hospitals across Europe had practices that eliminated germs that they didn't even know were there. Some policies required doctors, upon the death of a patient, to return home, take a warm bath, shave their head, and change into new clean clothes. In fighting contagion, this worked wonders, 
but no one knew why. So, when Semmelweis discovered these communicable, cadaverous particles, he believed he found the source of the outbreaks. He quickly shared his findings with the other doctors in the clinic. They were doubtful of Semmelweis's conclusion, but reluctantly agreed to wash their hands with chlorinated lime, essentially bleach, after performing autopsies. Over the next month, Semmelweis enforced his mandate with an iron fist, becoming furious if anyone failed to wash their hands after dealing with corpses. And sure enough, Semmelweis's mandate worked. After the change was implemented, the mortality rate from childbed fever dropped from 18.3% to just 2.2% in just two months. Around a year after Semmelweis's hand-washing method was instituted, three whole months passed without a single mother dying from childbed fever. This success made Semmelweis very popular amongst the up-and-coming generation of medical students, many of whom he mentored during this period. However, the old guard of Austrian doctors remained skeptical and attributed the lower mortality rate to the new ventilation system or simply a string of good luck. They had no conception of diseases and pathology like we do today. The idea of a single disease that could spread from person to person was unheard of. Getting sick was a personal issue that could stem from anything from a moral failing to a traumatic event to just plain bad luck. In this way of thinking, the doctors were both powerless and blameless for the spread of disease. So, despite all of Simmelweis's evidence, they didn't believe him. Simmelweis was furious, not because of the absence of praise he should have been receiving for his discovery, but because if his hand-washing was implemented across the empire, thousands upon thousands of new mothers would be saved each year. But the hospital staff only found more reasons to discount Simmelweis. Around this time, the civil disturbances in Simmelweis's native Hungary transformed into a full-fledged rebellion. Many young people joined in the uprising. A few members of the hospital staff did as well. While Simmelweis didn't join in the rebellion himself, he proudly wore Hungarian colors and supported his students in the call for civil liberties from the Austrian Empire. This distanced himself even further from the hospital administration as they firmly supported the current regime and its policies. By 1848, Simmelweis found himself in several disputes over his hand-washing method. Many doctors refused to do it, some because the bleach irritated their hands, and others because they refused to believe that the hands of an upper-class doctor could ever truly be unclean. In the few childbed fever deaths that happened on Simmelweis's watch, he often later found out that the doctor or midwife had not washed their hands, and he openly blamed them for the ensuing deaths. While most of the younger students loved Semmelweis, the conservative administrative staff distrusted him and their patience for him was running thin. Amid the political turmoil sparked by the uprisings, Semmelweis's term expired for his current position. The hospital declined to renew it. The indignant Semmelweis then applied for a professor position at the University of Vienna. The university agreed to grant him a position, but his title would have to be Professor of Theoretical Obstetrics, due to his outspoken promotion of his still unaccepted theory about the importance of handwashing. Simmelweis was, once again, enraged. His discovery wasn't theoretical. He had the data. 
the other doctor's inability to accept that data was costing the lives of thousands of new mothers. Semmelweis hit his breaking point. Without so much as even saying goodbye to any of his friends and colleagues, Semmelweis packed his bags and moved back to Budapest. Around this time, the Hungarian Revolution of 1848 had been crushed. Semmelweis returned to his hometown dejected. Both he and the revolution had failed. On May 20th, 1851, Semmelweis took the relatively insignificant, unpaid, honorary head physician position of the obstetric ward of a small hospital in Budapest. Upon arriving, some women were giving birth in the same room as covered corpses. They were a long way from being a model hospital, but Semmelweis once again implemented his hand-washing regimen for all of the doctors and midwives and enforced it with a righteous will. In a few months, childbed fever was virtually eliminated in the hospital. In his old workplace in Vienna, mortality rates for childbed fever bounced back up to 20%. His results were inevitably brought up before famous doctors in Budapest. They all dismissed him. They claimed the reduced mortality rate was merely the result of a rebalancing of the four humors, or less cases of uncleanliness of the bowel, terms just as vague as the cadaverous particles put forth by Semmelweis. Semmelweis married a young woman from a wealthy family in 1857. They had five children. During this time, Semmelweis did not settle into family life. He met with other doctors and tried to persuade them to implement hand-washing policies and kept correspondence with true believers across Europe. It was at this point that Semmelweis knew he had to do something he was always reluctant to do. He had to write a book. Now, Semmelweis loathed writing. The most concrete version of his theory of handwashing was a collection of notes that his students had cobbled together during his time in Vienna. So Semmelweis went about the process of writing the official literature for the gospel of handwashing, the cure to childbed fever. The writing came rough. Creating the book proved as difficult as he feared. When he finally finished, he held a manuscript for perhaps the most meandering, long-winded, and complex medical tome ever published. Semmelweis's magnum opus, entitled The Etiology, Concept, and Prophylaxis of Childbed Fever, was nearly incoherent. From wandering passages about insignificant details to rambling insults directed at his critics, the book was a mess. Six full pages were devoted to lambasting the obstetrician who replaced him in Vienna. It could have been salvaged by even a half-decent editor, but Semmelweis declined to hire one. He didn't even seem to make a second pass at the book himself, either. But Semmelweis used his limited remaining fortune to publish the book and send a copy to nearly every doctor in Eastern Europe. Most never touched the thing, and those who did found themselves lost in a sea of data and righteous convictions, with not an ounce of ink used to help the reader along. The few doctors in Europe who did read it were usually the few who already believed his theory. Semmelweis made no new friends, and plenty of new enemies. Angry that his theory didn't catch fire and spread to every hospital in Europe, Semmelweis fell into a deep depression. His personality seemed permanently altered. He began drinking like a sailor and frequently attended brothels across Budapest. He wrote angry open letters to doctors who had rejected handwashing, calling them unrepentant murderers and medical Neros. 
In every conversation, he always found a way back to hand-washing and childbed fever. His family was greatly distressed by his behavior. For every year that passed, the righteous obstetrician, now bald and overweight, seemed to age a decade. One day in 1865, while scheduled to give a talk at a university in Budapest, Semmelweis stood up abruptly while someone else was talking, pulled a crumpled piece of paper out of his trousers, and, for some reason, read aloud the entire midwife's oath. When he looked up from the paper, he seemingly had no idea where he was. His colleagues and friends met with his wife and told her something must be done. She came to the same conclusion they did. Semmelweis was losing his sanity. In 1865, a group of Semmelweis's friends from the medical community offered to take him to Vienna to tour a new private sanitarium that had recently opened. Semmelweis, quite interested in new medical facilities, agreed. They were greeted by the head doctor who seemed to act more as a warden than a physician, who led them through the sanitarium. Semmelweis examined the facility closely. In the midst of their tour, the group was observing a room when everyone slowly and quietly withdrew everyone except for Semmelweis. He heard the doors lock behind him. The jig was up. He pounded the doors as his friends left the facility. Semmelweis would remain in that mental asylum for the rest of his life. The doctor who had replaced Semmelweis in Vienna quietly instituted a policy of handwashing, but he did so with little fanfare, and of course, no credit to Semmelweis. But few other doctors would follow his lead until the implications of germ theory were fully realized decades later. Countless new mothers would continue to die from unwashed hands in the meantime. There are a myriad of reasons why Simmelweis couldn't break through to the medical establishment of his time, despite being objectively and unequivocally right. His surname was Jewish in a time when anti-Semitism was on the rise. He supported rebellions against the Austrian Empire when his colleagues were staunch loyalists. He never used a microscope to confirm the existence of his cadaverous particles. He didn't hire an editor to clean up the Byzantine prose of his book, and he attacked his opponents with a fervor that may have only solidified their spite. But the final and perhaps most important reason why Semmelweis failed is the fact that it is very very difficult to actually change a person's mind. Our brains are wired to maintain our current worldview at all costs, even when presented with new information, especially when presented with new information. This psychological phenomenon is often referred to as belief perseverance, or the backfire effect, where new evidence debunking a belief actually strengthens it. Ideas are remarkably resilient in the face of overwhelming empirical data. Some social scientists call this one of the chief flaws in human nature. We're a stubborn species. This flaw is now referred to by some as the Simmelweis reflex. As Ignis Simmelweis's plight shows, discovering a truth is only half the battle. The rest is convincing everyone else. It wasn't until the combined efforts of later scientists congealed into what we now call germ theory that Simmelweis was finally regarded as a respected obstetrician and unrequited genius. He is now a minor celebrity in the medical field. Plaques, university buildings, commemorative coins, and the like. Many have bestowed Simmelweis with the title Savior of Mothers. But that title did little to help Simmelweis 
while he was held against his will in a mental asylum in 1865. Simmelweis would spend the rest of his life in that sanitarium, but he wouldn't live much longer. He was confined in a straitjacket in a darkened room, screaming alone about childbed fever. He was fed laxatives and frequently doused in cold water after fighting with the guards. He was found dead in his cell on August 13, 1865, just two weeks after being admitted. The autopsy listed the cause of death as paralysis of the brain, a term meaningless even then. But the details of the autopsy tell a different story. It records severe blunt force trauma and a laceration, surely caused by one of his many struggles with the asylum guards. That laceration became infected, and that infection killed Ignis Simmelweis. Perhaps he would have lived if only the guards and asylum doctors had washed their hands. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and my story editor is Thomas Harlander. We are a proud member of the independent podcast network, Orbital Jigsaw. I don't know if you all noticed or not, but I've been quite sick recently, so my voice might have sounded a little different for this episode. However, fear not, for I have been religiously washing my hands. I think the hardest part of this episode was forgetting about germ theory entirely. It's really crazy to think how recent germ theory really is, but for most of human history, the study of disease was not the study of pathology and contagion. It was just based on rudimentary anatomy and medical guesswork. There's a really cool statue of Simmelweis that was erected in 1904 outside of the hospital where he worked at in Budapest. Um, he's standing there gallantly holding a large medical tome surrounded by a mother and about half a dozen babies crawling around his feet. If you like what I'm trying to do here, you can follow Historium on pretty much any form of social media. And to get access to my bonus episode feed and to help make Historium better, longer, and more frequent, you can do so on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>